The manufacturing sector has been growing faster than the rest of the economy, and uh, currently, if the rest of the economy were growing at the same rate as manufacturing, the overall growth would be at about 5%. I'm Fana Jaffe Walt. And I'm Adam Davidson. It's the new year. Happy New Year, everybody. Today is Tuesday, January 4th, 2011. And that was Norbert Orr from the Institute for Supply Management at the top. Today on the show, we meet the man in charge of saving the Spanish banking system and possibly, therefore, saving the entire global economy. Turns out that job bears a lot of similarities to a yenta. But first, our Planet Money indicator from Jacob Goldstein. Today's Planet Money indicator is 0.7%. Orders for manufactured goods rose by 0.7% between October and November. That's according to figures that came out this morning. They were up about 10% over the past year. And these are really the latest in a string of good numbers we've been seeing for manufacturing. It's it's growing faster than it has been for a while now. And Jacob, you know manufacturing, the state of American manufacturing. This is a bit of an obsession of mine. It's a healthy obsession. I, I think. think so. It's good. Yeah. I think most people misunderstand. They think, oh, there's nothing made in America. But America is the number one manufacturing country in the world. By some degree, we make 75% of the manufactured products that you use in the United States. But we employ very few people. Our manufacturing is incredibly productive and efficient. And Basically, the way I picture it is, if, if you think of a factory in China, I, I've been to many factories in China that you see lots and lots of people everywhere, all of them hand making effectively on the machines, all the cheap plastic consumer goods we use, assembling the electronic products we use. In the U.S., it's more like an incredible, clean, high-tech facility where all these robots and automated machines are making high-value products like medical equipment, landing gear for airplanes, whatever it might be, and there are very few people working there. So even though manufacturing overall in the U.S. has been growing for a long time, employment in manufacturing is pretty much in free fall for, for decades now. Yeah, I looked it up this morning, and in the second half of last year, even as the manufacturing sector was doing well financially, they were shedding jobs every month from July through November, which is the most recent jobs numbers that we have. Of course, jobs are the sort of central huge issue in our economy right now. They're, they're the thing everybody is worried about. So this is a real issue. Still, though, it is good for the economy to have a growing manufacturing sector, even if it isn't creating new jobs. It's good for our exports. And, you know, if you dig inside these numbers, you do see good signs for the broader economy beyond the manufacturing sector. There's one key measure in there of how much businesses are spending on stuff like computers, you know, stuff they need to operate. And that actually rose pretty sharply in November, which is a good sign. I mean, we can hope that, you know, businesses throughout the economy will start hiring people to sit in front of all these new computers they're buying. Way to bring it back around to the positive. Thank you, Jacob. Once in a while, things actually look all right to me. All right. Thanks, Jacob. Thanks, guys. On to the show. We are going to continue today looking with, I would say, measured but a legitimate fear at the country of Spain. So that country, like a lot of countries in Europe, is facing a debt crisis. But unlike the countries of Greece or Ireland or Portugal, Spain may be too big to save. Its economy is twice the size of those three countries combined, and its banking sector is sick. And if the Spanish banking sector fails in a big way, it's not going to be like Ireland or Greece, where basically Germany can rush to the rescue. 
it seems reasonable that the Spanish government might not be able to bail out its own sector. It's possible that the rest of Europe doesn't have enough money to bail out the Spanish banking sector. Actually, you may remember previously on Planet Money. The Spanish government and the Spanish banks owe to French banks $162 billion. <laughs> to German banks, $182 billion. To Ireland, the Irish Bank of Holland, that's $25 billion. Italy, 25 billion too. United States, 46 billion, 47 billion, sorry, 47 billion. That's Santiago Carbo Valverde. I spoke with him on last week's podcast, and he was showing me his spreadsheet about how Spain could possibly take down the entire global banking system. And I just want to think this through, make sure I understand it. So, so basically, Spain's banks, we find out, are insolvent. They go down. They can't pay their debts. They owe a lot of money to Germany. Germany is their largest lender. So suddenly everyone's looking at Germany and saying, wait a second, maybe those banks are going to be in a lot of trouble because, because they have so much exposure to Spain. And then people look at France and say, wait, France lent a lot of money to Germany. And the U.S. lent them a lot of money to France. And I mean, it, it reminds me of, of Lehman Brothers. This one investment bank that most people don't think about at all could fail, and suddenly people are losing their jobs all over the world because of a financial crisis that happened in ways that they didn't even think about. But, Adam Davidson, not to worry, because this entire scenario can be averted by a single man we are about to meet. Are you ready? Ready. I'm excited. His name? Angel. Angel. I don't know how, how to pronounce it in, in English. We, has, we say here, Angel. Uh-huh. But it's, it's like Angel. I mean, like Charlie's Angels. <laughs> Angel, Angel Borges. And Angel is a small, energetic banking consultant who actually prefers to communicate while scribbling numbers and graphs on a piece of paper, like he was writing Angel, really big letters, as we were talking. And about six months ago, Angel got a call requesting that he please assist in saving the Spanish banking system, more specifically, saving the Spanish cajas. Cajas, as I learned in your excellent podcast last week, are this very strange, very Spanish model of banking. They're these nonprofit, community-oriented savings banks that date back to the 1500s. They're more than half of the Spanish banking system, but they're not run usually by professional finance people. They're run by local community leaders, politicians, sometimes even priests. And in the last 10 years, like so many financial institutions all over the world, they got really caught up in the kind of bubble, the credit bubble that existed, and they lent a lot of money to some really bad real estate loans. And actually, I think this is the first time I've ever suggested in a podcast that people should stop listening to this podcast. But I do recommend that you, if you didn't hear last week's podcast, maybe maybe pause this one and go back and listen and then come back. That, uh, that's what I would recommend. Okay. And then our story right now picks up after the Cajas have dug an enormous real estate hole for themselves. After the world has noticed that they're being run by local politicians who know very little about construction loans and international finance. And right at the moment that the Spanish government realizes it has to do something or their banking system could fall apart and could take the entire economy of Spain, Europe, maybe even the globe with it. And at this moment, the Spanish government thinks it has a pretty clever idea. There are some healthier cajas and there are some sicker ones. So take the sick cajas and combine them with the healthy ones. You average everything out, you have a less sick banking system. And the Spanish government decided we don't want to intervene. We don't want to tell each caja who they should merge with, who they shouldn't merge with. So they just said to the entire 
world of cajas. Okay, guys, there needs to be way fewer of you. There are too many of you, so you guys got to merge. By the end of 2010, we want there to be around a quarter as many cajas as there are right now. So now, cajas, go figure it out. Enter Angel and his paper and pen. Okay, um, one year ago, there were 46 saving banks in Spain. 46. From 46 to uh, 12, you need to find combinations of this. So some of them were... So who's going to get partnered with who? Yes, that's it. Angel works for a consulting company called AFI, and he had worked with a lot of the cajas before, so they hired him to facilitate this merger process. And you can imagine, you're one of these local cajas, you're a politician or a local leader, or maybe you're a priest, and you and your family or your church, your colleagues, have been running that caja in your town for more than a century. And now you're supposed to go out there and find new partners? So the calls started coming in to Ángel from Caja presidents across Spain, at first a little hesitant. This caja is, looks, looks nice to me. I mean, do you know them? Could you help me to get in contact with them? And I organize a, a meeting or whatever, and we would talk. First of all, we would talk without any type of commitment or anything like that. Let's, let's know each other. To see whether there is some, we call here in Spain, whether there is a chemistry, mm-hmm. chemistry between the two. And, and if there were some good, uh, good looks between, between the two of them, we will go along. I mean, let's, let's work together and what would be a nice arrangement of what would be a... So you're, you're like the man arranging marriages between cajas. Something like that. Yes, yeah, something like that, something like that. So it was funny, it was funny, the process. It was funny for a month, maybe two. There were good looks, there was chemistry, there were dreams. Angel would arrange more meetings, and it would all be going well until inevitably someone at the table would ask the question. Who is going to lead? Who is going to lead? Who's going to be in charge? Yes, who's going to be in charge? That was the main aspect for breaking up. So the good looks and the chemistries fell away once they realized. As soon as that question came up, yeah. Angel says actually a lot of potential marriages ended right then and there. And this is a big question. Whenever you have a merger or an acquisition, right, like it's being negotiated by the people who run the bank. And at some point they're like, wait a second, we don't need all of us running this bank. If this merger goes through, some of us might lose our jobs or some of us might be demoted. And these cajas, as you explained to me, these are centuries-old institutions, like one was run by six priests, and it had been run by, you know, six priests forever, and others might be run by sort of the leading wealthy family in a neighborhood, and their parents and grandparents had been running that bank forever. And so it's very easy to picture them sitting around the table saying, wait a second, I'm not going to destroy centuries of history just to give some jerk from some other caja all the power that I've had. Right. So that, that was too big of a threat for a lot of these cajas, and they had to like regroup or start their search over for a caja match. And other cajas did say, OK, we have some good looks. We're paying this independent guy to help us merge. So let him decide who's in charge. So Angel got out his pen and paper and sat down with tons of data about what each caja was bringing to the table. And remember, these are not public companies, so there's not a lot of information out there about their value. He had to value them. 
And he'd look at the market share of each kacha, their assets, the potential for growth, and he'd assign power. Kacha A gets 20%, Kacha B 40%, Kacha C 40%. I have to tell you that during the process, there was a lot of pressure from any of them. They were calling us. This guy was calling us. Hey, guy, you are valuing me wrongly. I, I, I am worth more than 20%. This guy, I am valued more than 40. This guy, I am valued more than 40. Angel had to push aside the lobbying calls and just come to his own numbers. And when that was done, it seemed like the hardest part was behind him, right? He's figured out how the power is distributed. And now the Cajas know who's in charge, and all they had to do was work out the details of their new union. If you have two saving banks who are going to merge, you don't need two accounting departments. You don't need two risk departments. You don't need two marketing departments. You only need one. And for that, you need to fire some people. But the whole point of the cajas was to support the local community, right? So you have these priests or politicians doing what priests and politicians are not supposed to do, turning to their local community and saying, hey, all you people in marketing, you're fired and we're going to let some bunch of people in some other part of Spain keep those jobs. Yeah, that was the whole point, taking these very political institutions whose goal was community development and moving them more into being well-run businesses, you know, to an actual functioning economy, having cold blood, like the guy in the last podcast said, that was the entire point of this merger process. And I just want to remind everyone and sort of remind myself that all these weird small community banks in Spain having these jealousies with other community banks in Spain, the stakes are really huge for us. It's the that very inefficiency of the Spanish banking system that has put Spain in so much trouble, and Spain being in so much trouble has jeopardized the entire global economy. So every one of us, I mean, even here in New York, who've never in our life thought about cajas in, in Spain, we need these politicians to to think more like business people, to go against the fundamental nature of politics. Instead of trying to make their constituents happy, they're going to have to make them upset. So remember the guy Luis Garicano from the podcast? He was at the London School of Economics. He was the guy who had talked all day and he was drinking hot tea. Right, right. So that guy, when I talked to him about this, he said, yes, this is huge stakes for the global economy of what happens in these small regional banks. And unfortunately, the process has become really political. The worst cases, for example, Caixa Nova, Caixa Galicia, two cajas from northwest of Spain, what they have done is they take turns. They have decided that one CEO is going to be the CEO for 18 months and the other guy will be there after 18 months. And in every position from the top to the bottom, they've put a general director and a joint and a, and a vice general director and a marketing head and a co-marketing head and a finance head and co-finance head. And so they have two jobs for every absolutely every function that will rotate or that will divide. You can imagine that efficiencies are not going to to obtain and to be improved. Oh, my God. That is so awful. It's like exactly the opposite of what we want them to be doing. Yes, and it got even less efficient as time went on. So the Spanish government had demanded the mergers begin in July. And by November, half of them had not gone through. They were still working out details. And there were a lot of things to work out. If you merge two cajas, say, from a poor region and a richer region, what do you pay your two finance heads? Do you pay them the higher wage or the lower wage? 
In one case, there was this caja that closed early on Thursdays, and they merged with a caja that stayed open late on Thursdays. So there was a big worker strike about staying late on Thursdays, and they refused to work on Thursdays. Even even the names of these cajas became an issue, which actually brings us back to Caja Sur. And I remember Caja Sur from the last podcast. That's in Cordoba, and that's the one that's actually run by the Catholic Church. You walked around Cordoba, and everyone you talked to banked at Caja Sur. They all loved that it was run by these priests. And I'm just picturing some other caja negotiating and sitting at some conference table and there's all these like severe looking priests. <laughs> right. It's a little intimidating. Apparently Caja Sur wasn't really open to the whole merger business. Like a, a nearby caja tried to merge with them and several people who were close to the Caja Sur board told me that the priests determined that they needed a caja more linked with their religious beliefs. That caja was not religious enough. See, this is something we need in America. Each bank should be part of a specific religious – I'm just kidding. But could they find a caja that no. shared <laughs> – No. So so Caja Sur basically became the first and only caja so far to be taken over and forced to merge with a caja from up north that was called BBK. And it turns out that even when the merger is forced, even when you can eliminate the priests from the negotiating table, it's still really complicated – and this is where we get to the name. I talked to Professor Jose Maria Casado at the University of Cordoba, and he says Cajasor merged with BBK, and that K is for a Basque name. And in Cordoba, Basques are sometimes considered terrorists. They wanted to separate from Spain. They speak a different language. So trying to change the name to a Basque name ends up being a huge problem. Perhaps that's not a possibility that can be resolved. Actually, trying to impose a Basque name in a Spanish-speaking land, it's almost like an invasion. You can't really have it. It's not going to work. Things are complicated enough without trying to get into establishing a Basque name in a Spanish land. And this is a problem everywhere in Spain. Spain's an ancient country. There are really different cultures in different regions. There's these strong independent regions. So getting local cajas from those regions to merge across those borders is really hard. So as of January 1st, Cajasor is officially BBK, although they've sort of avoided this whole problem by pretending, at least in their signs, that that never happened. There is still a Cajasor branch on pretty much every corner in Cordoba. And just whispers about how it's owned by this bank from the Basque region. So, so where are we in the mission to save the Spanish banking system? T to be honest, for what I've heard so far in this podcast, it does not seem like it's going very well. And let me just remember, you said that there were 46 cajas when this all started, and the Spanish government said to the cajas, we need there to be 12 by the end of 2010 for the system to be healthy again. Well, so on the one hand, when you think about that, you know, they said by January 1st that needs to be true. And by January 1st, we're pretty close to the numbers that they set out to have. Are the merged banks necessarily better off, though? I mean, even the guy who made the matches, Angel, says a lot of these marriages are on pretty shaky ground. And he actually told me he is sure that this is not the end of Caja mergers. He thinks there will be more problems and more mergers will be needed. I don't know if it's going to be next month or next 18 months or next three years, but they are going to have. So I you don't think know. this is the only the beginning? Uh, sure, definitely, definitely. More business for you. 
<laughs> I hope. <laughs> I hope. That's what's so strange and difficult about a financial crisis, as we've seen throughout the last few years. It, it's not enough to make banks healthy. You have to sort of do some theater. You have to create the impression that the banks are healthy because if investors are too nervous and they pull money out of banks, even healthy banks, they will destroy those banks. So at the end of the day, what, what needs to happen is not just to make these cajas healthy, but to somehow make a world of very nervous investors believe that the cajas are healthy. And that's exactly what Spain plans to do. I mean, you can definitely expect over the next few months for the Spanish government to be saying the cajas have merged, the Spanish banking system is much healthier. Look over here, we fixed the problem. Investors of the world, you can start investing again. And that's been a problem throughout the euro debt crisis. It was a problem in the US for a while in late 2008 into 2009. It's really hard for a government to convince nervous investors, hey, trust us, our banks are healthy, because the investors are looking at the government and saying, wait a second, your survival depends on you convincing us <laughs> right. that the banks are healthy. You might not be the most trustworthy judge. Yeah. I mean, it's a case that Greece tried to make and didn't work. Ireland tried to make and didn't work. And I guess the fear now is that Spain will try to make it and it won't work for Spain either. If you're looking to meet that special Spanish caja, <laughs> the one with good looks, chemistry, you can see a photo of Angel Angel Borges, our banking matchmaker specialist, on our blog, npr.org slash money. Please also post your thoughts, your questions in the comments there, or send them to us at planetmoney at npr.org. We really do read every email, and we really like getting them. I'm Adam Davidson. And I'm Hannah Jaffe Walt. Thanks for listening. Tiempo que no estamos divididos Algo sobraba cuando echamos a volar